Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Royfield here. Before we start... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A new advertiser. Now, before some of you go, ugh, and fast forward a couple of minutes, um, please lend me your ears because this is important because it helps to keep the lights on around here and pay some bills. And this advertiser is also very different. Knowledge of the classics is back in style. You know, it's people like those philosopher authors, people like Homer and Cicero and Spinola. And some of the moderns like Nietzsche as well. Online Great Books is designed to help you to develop a regular habit of reading the great works of Western culture. With weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers, they can help you keep on track and schedule with your reading. OnlineGreatBooks.com has a reading goal system that is designed to help you to progress through reading and the comprehension of the great books with just three one hour reading sessions each week every month they select for you an edition of one of the great books and they will send it directly to your home they begin with homer and then progress through the works of plato aristotle descartes and then on to the moderns they even do shakespeare so if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the classics of Western culture, go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ROI. Enter the promo code ROI to get your 25% off your first three months of learning. Enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great music. Today we speak to Michelle Gerber-Klein, author of the book An Unreasonable Man, which is about the life and the times of couture designer Charles James.
I've always been fascinated by the world of fashion. And one of my kind of secrets is that before I fell in love with the world of media, I actually wanted to be a fashion designer. And people like Christian Dior and Yves Saint Laurent were names which evoke strong memories of being a wannabe designer as a teenager. But one of the names of world fashion, which kind of eluded me, was Charles James. Michelle, why have I not been aware of the man who helped to inspire the new look? Why have I overlooked the life and the work of Charles James? I think there are probably a lot of fashion designers who are very important in their time that you might not know about. And Charles fits with those for one reason. None of them developed businesses that lasted after their death. And Charles definitely wasn't a businessman, was he? Let's kind of jump into maybe the start of his decline before we have a picture of his life. But what happened to Charles in the 1950s? He's in New York. He's at the height of his powers. But what started his long decline? He wanted to experiment in mass marketing. He was the king of the, uh, he was the ne plus ultra of exclusive fashion. Every woman who was somebody wanted to be dressed by him. He had invented fashion prototypes through the 30s when fashion was hot and evolving very, very quickly because there were all kinds of new fabrics that were being invented. There were all kinds of new fabrics that were being invented. And he now wanted to take what he had learned and taught himself and share it with the masses, like building Usonian houses. He wanted everybody to be able to, to enjoy what, what he knew about the technicality of fashion, because he was very good technically in fashion and invented a lot of patterns and, and measurements and experimented with the measurements that change and don't change on your body. Anyway, he thought that he would try to license. License was really invented by Paul Poiret, who was his mentor, because in Europe, people made uh, clothes and people respected the ownership of clothes. But in America, everybody ripped off famous designers. They, they just ripped it off and the designer didn't get paid for their design. So licensing was a way to get paid for what you invented. And Charles experimented in it so that he could make the clothes and, and, and set his give the standard of style that he had evolved to people who really couldn't afford to pay the prices that his clothes started. He had always been very democratic in that way. Uh, when he started out in the 1920s, he merchandised his haute couture hats next to less expensive virgin, versions in a, a best in company ad. I mean, he, he was groundbreaking in thinking of doing this. He didn't know how to develop the contract properly because he really wasn't a lawyer and because these contracts hadn't been properly developed in the past. There was no real licensing track record except perhaps for Chanel with the perfume. And Chanel was always thinking that the Vertimers had ripped her off and then she'd go sue them and then she'd lose. And then they'd go back and send her roses and give her millions of dollars that they were making for her from the perfume again. But basically there wasn't a lot of it outside of that, certainly not in in fashion, which in America was changing very rapidly. And the Americans believe in changing and believed at that time in changing fashion every year. Anyway, so he didn't have a properly developed contract. 
And he was so anxious to get people to work with him because he was an artist who created, cared about making what he created work more than making money, that he gave away his work for hardly anything. He, he got low, he got no minimums, he got very little money, and he didn't really get uh, a, a proper um, percentage of the gross sales, which is something you want to get in, in, when you're licensing. The businesses would work, but after a while, because also the way Charles designed, he didn't design four collections a year. He designed one prototype, you know, every two years. After a while, the person would be put in business, they would be making a lot of money, they would have learned a new business, and they would get sick of Charles because they didn't need him anymore. They could hire some other little designer to take all the things he taught them, and she would cost less money, and she would churn out four uh, collections a year, and that would be cool, and he, they would get along with her because she wasn't some kind of grand aristocratic Englishman who was always talking about plumb lines and, and the thin wall of air around a, a, a body, between the body and a dress. There was this guy who sued him. And he sued him because he wanted to get rid of him. And the lawsuit essentially wrecked Charles's career because although he got money from this man, he did, his, the man's name was Henry Winston. He did not win the, the lawsuit in the sense that the designs that were his were not recognized as belonging to him. Is that clear? Absolutely crystal clear. Let, let's go back. So... Charles is transatlantic, isn't he? So he's born in Britain in 1908. Tell us a little bit about his family and the relationship that he has with his father, which is kind of so crucial to his character um, kind of growing up and his future profession. So Charles was born in 1908 in Camberley, England. Uh, his mother was very, very rich. She was an heiress from Chicago. Uh, she would be not quite a billionaire almost in today's dollars. His father came from an eminent British military family. His grandfather was one of the founders of Sandhurst and was the person who tutored Winston Churchill and got him into Sandhurst because Winston wasn't very good at taking tests and had failed his test, his admission tests three times. Uh, his father had followed his father's footsteps into the military and was an instructor there. He came from a very privileged family at a time that Britain was a very privileged country. Uh, he, he was the middle child. He had two sisters. He was the heir apparent to the mother's family fortune. And I think the father might have been jealous of that, as well as of the obvious affection his mother had for him. And Charles was a very creative, always, he was born that way, multi-talented child. He was a musical prodigy, and the father was a rigid, uh, good-looking, bad-tempered uh, British army officer. Yeah, and who was a man of his time, a Victorian Edwardian man. Yes. So kind of reading your book, we got a real sense that his father just didn't understand Charles. Can you give us some examples of how that maybe played out in his adolescence? I think his father disliked him. Was mm -hmm. He stood for things that his father his father might have been afraid of and, and wasn't particularly in tune with. Uh, I don't think the father actually... Yeah, to tell you the truth, he doesn't seem to have been particularly close to the two daughters either. So it's not really as though, you know, Charles was totally singled out in this. 
but um, the, the father was very attached to the mother. Anyway, Charles was sent to Harrow. It was, it was I think, the third in, in a series of boarding schools that he was sent to. And he did quite well there, but uh, his father didn't like his friends, in particular Cecil Beaton, whom he thought was too effete. And he somehow pulled him out, and, and there's a... Probably they sent him to, to music school in Bordeaux because he was so talented in music and had actually composed things that were played in, at, at Harrow. And somewhere in that time period, apparently had him raped by someone in his military command. And it was very upsetting to Charles, as one can easily imagine, and he finished his studies. So Charles goes to to Harrow, and he has this kind of classical British education. He has an austere father. It, it's almost the elements of a quintessentially kind of British um, upper-middle-class um, upbringing. He wanted to become an architect. Um, what derails him from architecture and puts him into fashion? He didn't want to become an architect, particularly want to become an architect. He liked being in the uh, learning about architecture what happened was when he flunked out of the university of bordeaux uh they tried to get him into oxford and they couldn't get him into oxford (laughs) so they decided they rentals (laughs) they decided they'd get him a job with a man called samuel insel samuel insel had been thomas edison's personal assistant and owned Cotton edison in the united states he was a very close friend of charles's parents and in fact charles's father investing a lot of the money with of the mother's money with Insel. Mm-hmm. decided he'd make because everybody knew that Charles was a genius. So Insel decided that he he'd make Charles into his successor. He'd build him up through the company and, and he gave him a job as his personal assistant. And Charles would have none of it. He didn't want it. He didn't like the structure. He didn't want to be in that corporate world. He and so he started making batiks in the kitchen, and he staged a fashion show in Insel's office, and he caused a huge disruption, and he got himself transferred to the architecture department. And he stayed there, and he liked it a lot, and he learned a lot about architecture until his father joined the firm, at which point Charles did not want to be in the same place as his father, and he quit. And he went, and in what he described as a hideout in a friend's basement, he started making hats for women. And that was the beginning of his fashion career. Okay, so approximately what time, uh, what year is this? And and then also circle back, Michelle, and you said that everybody knew that he was a genius. How was his genius manifesting itself at that time? Apart from the musical talent, which was apparent from age six, he wrote poetry uh, he at Harrow he played Puck, which he looked exactly like Puck. He was a he was a perfect fit for playing Puck. Uh-huh. Full play, I, I think he drew as well. I mean, he was multi talented child, a human being. Just before we go on to, you know, his early career in designing hats and obviously going going into dresses. Why are you so fascinated by Michelle? Why were you drawn to, to writing this book? This rather lengthy book. 
excellently penned book. <laughs> well, it's heavily researched. I don't think it's that lengthy as biographies go, but, but thank you. I was given tapes that Charles had made at the end of his life. At the end of his life, he wanted to preserve his legacy, and since he hadn't left a business, he, he was trying to, to write, get a, write a book or get a book written about himself. And to that end, he had, he had made tapes with... Um, uh, people in Andy Warhol's entourage, uh, an artist called Anton Parrish and a writer called R. Corey Hay. And they were intended for a cable television show that was Anton Parrish's insolite cable television show. And so Charles just told the stories of his life. And Corey and, 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 and Anton gave these to me and said, see what you can do with them. And I couldn't figure out this guy at all. And I was just totally intrigued. He was so strange. He was such a mixed metaphor. I think that's what it was. So you talked about uh, the tapes and the things which were collected and found at the end of Charles's life in the 70s when he died. I believe that's in the Chelsea Hotel. Those were collected by Homer Lane, weren't they? Um, Homer Lane is that, his assistant, his last assistant. How important have those tapes been in terms of keeping the legacy of Charles alive? And, um, and so that people like me who have a passing interest in fashion are kept aware of, of his work. What would have happened without Homer doing that? Well, the tapes are kept alive by me because I wrote the book. Nobody else has used them. Uh-huh. The, when, when the Met did the uh, show in 2014, they knew about them late, and it was not part of their research. Although I knew the, the people at the Met who did the show, and I, we'd been talking together about developing the, the, uh, the history of Charles Jones. Okay, so we're kind of jumping around in this kind of conversation and that's really the way that I I like to do it because it shouldn't just be a chronological telling of someone's life. But I'm as much fascinated by the life of Charles, which we're going to um, touch on, but I'm also kind of fascinated by you. So you said that he was a man of contradictions and the book is called An Unreasonable Man, Fame, Fashion and Art. Are you unreasonable? Do you have fame? You have a love of fashion. Tell me a little bit about you. Do you know if I'm unreasonable? So <laughs> <laughs> probably from some people's points of view, the title came because Charles was known to be difficult and uh, Shaw has a quote saying, reasonable men accept things the way they are. Therefore, it is left to the unreasonable man to change the world. I think anybody who has a big dream and tries to realize it is an unreasonable person. They're not going along with the way things are. They're looking at things. They're criticizing things. They're trying to evaluate and describe them. They want to create their own perspective. Charles has his burgeoning career in the 1930s. And you mentioned Cecil Beaton, somebody who is a total lion in terms of fashion, photography in the mid 20th century. Describe their working relationship. Because I, I, doing, the, doing the research for this show, I just came across this beautiful picture, which I, I knew of the picture. I didn't realise it was actually Charles James. He's also this head almost like this disembodied head on kind of mirrors, which is taken by Cecil Beaton. And it's kind of iconic. 
Describe their working relationship and how important Cecil Beaton was in terms of moving on and the progression of Charles's career. Yeah, that's a surrealist head, and it's part of a series of of portraits that Charles took of a took of a number of his friends. Their relationship was very important to Charles, and it was very important to Cecil too. They met each other at Harrow. Cecil was the older boy. Mm-hmm. And they, and it may be also that when Cecil left Harrow, Charles got a little depressed. I'm not. I think Cecil is sort of protective of Charles. They weren't from the same background, so Charles was certainly more social than Cecil was. Uh, and and Charles reminds that Cecil of that in a letter at the end of his life. But but they were close. When they reconnected. Charles left after Charles started making hats in, in the 1920s. Charles got Kate. Well, Charles had a, a, a bad passat, a bad a little affair in in Chicago, and decided he was. I think he decided it was cool more than anything else. But he decided he was going to commit suicide, and he staged this elaborate suicide. Though he. Did, he did darken the room and he put candles in the room and he had ether and he had it on his nose and, and in a handkerchief. And then the, no, the ether started burning his nose. So he started screaming and people came and got him and took him to this hospital that his grandfather donated the money to found. And it, it created a bit of stir in, in, in Chicago. And, and Fowler McCormick, who was a friend of the family, he was the man who owned International Harvester, which is a really big company still in, in America, gave him $25 to get out of town. So Charles, Charles got his second-hand Pierce Arrow Roadster, piled his hats in it, took, <laughs> took Fowler's $25 and drove to New York, where somehow he reconnected with Cecil. And at that point, their friendship, their friendship became very, very important to both of them. Cecil took pictures of things that Charles made, uh, put them in his column of Vogue, at Vogue. He just had a column of, at Vogue that he was starting with. He introduced Charles to fashionable women that would wear the clothes so they could be photographed in them so that, that the clothes could go in Vogue and who would buy the clothes. So that was really the beginning of, of Charles's career as a, as a couturier. Just before he goes to London and just before he does his sister's wedding dress in 1928, he's making, um, he's starting to make clothes as well. I'm kind of looking at some of these great designs and what I kind of love about the way that he kind of reimagined the female form. It's kind of very asymmetrical. And I love the kind of these, these spirals that he seems to kind of create. But that's just me throwing my early 21st century spin on his work. How would you quintessentially describe his work in the 1930s? Well, the asymmetry is like Picasso. Everybody's asymmetrical, and Charles deliberately made everything uh, that he designed asymmetrical to mirror the natural asymmetry that exists in the world. Of course, he, he tweaked it so he could mirror it exactly. He made it better in his eyes. In the 1920s, women started exercising, so their bodies changed, and they were able to, to sort of show their bodies more. Uh, by the beginning of 1930, uh, Charles and got the idea of wrapping the body. And that's where you get the first taxi dress. And Charles always thought in terms, and rightly, rightly, so this just shows you how smart he is. 
always thinks of clothing in terms of sensuality, which is obvious the way, obviously the way, one of the ways one should think about clothing. And so he, he makes dresses with scars, and then he's sitting in the back seat of a taxi, and he's thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if there were a dress that you could un- unwrap and wrap up again in the back mm-hmm. seat of a taxi? And he invents the first wrap dress, which is he calls the taxi dress. And of course, Diane von Furstenberg makes her fortune from it. But he's the one who comes up with the idea. And it's a very modern idea. It involves ease and it involves sensuality. And it involves a new pattern. So that's... And, 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 a, and a level of functionality as well. Yes, because it's easy. So he talks in the 30s. He talks about how women have exercised. Their bodies are toned and there's a new figure. He's going to design all clothes for what he calls the erotical it. He says, clothing is a rehearsal for propagating. So every time he makes a dress, there's a, there's a point of tension that reveals something about sexuality. Michelle, obviously fittings were an incredibly important part of fashion back then. You know, a society lady would come in and the designer himself would pin them. How did Charles go about doing his fittings? Set the scene for us. Well, the fittings were incredibly important because one had to get every detail right. Charles's clothes depended very much on balance, uh, and and he viewed them architecturally from the round. So, so, So they had to work not just front to back, or they had to work in a circle, in an oval. They were geometrically, almost mathematically programmed. In order to achieve this, when he was fitting, he almost always played music. And almost everybody who remembers being fitted by Charles talks about how they stood there for two hours getting their pants fitted and loud music was playing in the background. Brahms, Debussy, Rachmaninoff. Which is a wonderful link for us to play a piece of music which probably, most definitely, if he's playing Debussy, Charles would have played was in one of those fittings. It's uh, Cure de Lune. Okay.
was his heyday? If if you had to point your finger to a year, to a collection, Michelle, what year, what collection would that be? It's like peak Charles. There are no collections. So Scaparelli does collection. She does the circus collection. She does whatever collection. She does the names. Charles does dresses and gives them names. There's a sequence of dresses and press ideas and, and, and design ideas but there are no collections per se. He'll show a group of dresses, for, for example, to the buyers from New York. In Paris, when he was 26, he, he, the, Paris, the, the buyers from New York came to Paris to buy from the Haute Couturier, and Charles is showing him their clothes and they're buying them, which is shocking to all the French people. But he's not making one collection after another that has a different theme or a different idea. He never, never did that. The, the clothes mm-hmm. are all prototypes you can take ideas from them and inter- interpret them into something else. So you can take a hem, uh, I don't know, a sleeve, and it, it can turn into a dress or, or a bodice, and it can turn into a jumpsuit. Absolutely, absolutely. He's somebody who didn't just think of the female form, but he was very interested in the uh, in pattern cutting, but the but almost the flexibility of design and how things could be remodeled, reshaped, and in that way, he's very much a visionary. Why did he move to the U.S. just before the Second World War? Went, I just want to say one thing about his patterns. At the end of his life, his patterns, he got a Guggenheim fellow, fellowship for his patterns. So he's the only designer whose patterns have ever been considered works of art. Wow. I tell you, way back when, when I was studying um, needlework as a, as a teenage boy, wanting to be a fashion designer, I actually enjoyed drafting patterns almost more than I did actually making clothes. There, there, there was there's something about working out where to put a dart or a seam and how a certain fabric would fall, but looking at it from a flat piece of, of paper that I actually found eminently kind of fascinating and it was and it was a puzzle and um so for him to kind of have that accolade from pattern cutting you know for me personally actually says an incredible amount about this the skilled nature of his draftsmanship mm-hmm. yes and he's self-taught on top of that he came to new york in 1939 when that, the whole group of, of, of international uh, bon vivants uh, moved from Paris, and intellectuals, because he, they, they were part of them, Max Ernst was one of them, moved from Paris to New York to avoid the war. Before he left, was he a real kind of London socialite? And, and if he was, was that such a a hard thing for him to do you know moving out of the you know the crucible of london life kind of fashion and going to new york which is not exactly a backwater but it's not like now we can catch a plane and and just be in another country in five hours that that was a much bigger journey to make then than it is now yes uh was he international yes he was he he at one point in in the 30s he had businesses in in paris london and new york I, it was brief because his businesses didn't last very long but but he did he did have that triangle so how did he establish himself as this mid-century american 
designer. Tell us about those networks that he kind of fell into and the fashion world of New York just before America would have then joined the Second World War. Well, so he's not American except that his mother's American and, and she's from a very fancy family. So that gives him a kind of entree. Uh, he was well known in England. That gives him a and and France because he went to France before after he left England before he came to America. Um, and he he was and he was social there and he dresses for for all the balls the Parisian balls. Um, in America, he was he was approached by Elizabeth Arden to do her wedding trousseau, and Elizabeth Arden was a Canadian who had been born dirt poor. There's actually no real record of her birth. She was so poor when she was born. Her father uh, was addicted to gambling and her mother died in her youth. And she uh, she came to New York and, and she learned the beauty business and she got a, a loan and making all these creams that were supposed to make you look good and, and rejuvenate you. And she went to Paris just before the First World War and saw the courtesans wearing mascara and eye makeup. And she brought it right back to New York and that was the basis of her uh, fortune. Anyway, she married a count, Count Ivanov, Erlov Ivanov, and uh, who turned out not to be a count and who turned out to be a swindler. But she hired Charles, who she had met through Bessie Marbury, who was at the height of New York society and was the first literary agent ever. Uh, she uh, she got Charles to uh, to uh, make her trousseau, and her trousseau was very successful. So she decided that in her her beauty salon or her very high class beauty salon, where you went for all kinds of treatments and things, she also wanted to sell clothes. And she thought that Charles would be the pers- perfect person to design these clothes and to give her the additional cachet that she wanted. And she hired him. And she gave him his start, and he met very many important clients through her. It lasted two years, but but and and she made him design real collections. She gave him some kind of backbone and some kind of security, and she launched him. Michelle, mm-hmm. you describe this world of society so well. Are you a socialite? Are you a Manhattan uh, lady who, who who lunches? No, I don't. Well, I lunch sometimes. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> but are you a socialite? Are, are you a Manhattan socialite? Are you, are you akin to this world? I know we're talking about 60, 70 years hence, but yeah. how, alien, how alien is this world to you? I don't like the word socialite because it implies a woman who spends most of her time thinking about going out and her appearance. Mm-hmm. And her, her, the effect she creates going to various, quote unquote, social events. Uh, and I hope I'm much less superficial <laughs> than that word would imply. Um, I, I have been, I've been involved in a number of charities. I'm I married into a family that gave money to the art world, and so I, I, I was came through that involved in philanthropy and through that in, 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 in charities and giving parties. And I've done that as part of that. But I, I don't consider myself as a superficial person. Um, I've written a lot about art uh, because I came to learn 
about it again through, through my marriage, and I've continued to write about fashion because that was my career. The new look is seen as one of the defining moments of 20th century fashion, and he gets inspiration from Charles. How? Charles had a client, uh, Anne Messel, who's currently a, a character in The Crown, who was the sister of Oliver Messel, who was uh, the premier stage and set designer in the 1930s in London. And she was his muse and partner. She was Oliver's muse and partner. And for a period of time when she was married to Anthony Armstrong Jones, she was his father. She went out with Oliver all the time and, and in, uh, in London. And she, she frequented the sort of bohemian intellectual circles that Charles was drawn to and they met there. And they instantly became friends. She, she, she was a woman who, who recognized talent immediately. Uh, they liked each other and she decided to patronize him. And she was very uh, motherly almost toward Charles. She introduced him to her brother. Her brother got him work in the theater. He learned theatrical techniques. They started looking back to the future and making Edwardian dresses fashionable again. So then you go back to the full skirted dress away from the slinky, the, the slinky thing of the 30s. And in particular was, was drawn to, to the Edwardian period. Uh, and she was also drawn to the history of clothing. She came from a family where, where the women conserved their clothes and, and thought of a, a sequence of their dresses as a kind of biography. They were also both very involved in flowers and the relationship between dresses and flowers and petticoats as, as petals. And when, um, when Christian Dior made his first collection, it was called Carrara, which is, which is, is, is the, the uh, a part of the flower that, that surrounds the, the, uh, the, the very center and, and that the, the petals go out of. And the, the models in, in his first collection, the new look collection, were meant to evoke flowers in full bloom walking down the runway. It's, it's directly from the clothes that Charles and Anne were making together for her, mm -hmm. where to various balls and, and to various social occasions. Uh, she, la she later became the Countess of Ross. She divorced Armstrong Jones and became the Countess of Ross. He made her trousseau. That's where Elizabeth Arden got the idea. She wanted to go to the guy who had made the trousseau for the Countess of Ross. I love your level of detail. Your passion for, for Charles, the period, the society is just uh, writ large with what, you, what you're saying here, Michelle. Charles has helped to inspire this landmark new look after the Second World War. And you've described um, kind of very clearly, very elegantly earlier how Charles fundamentally was an artist. His canvas for his creativity was clothing, was draping the female form. He was not a businessman. He couldn't pay his taxes in the mid-50s, and that gives us a somewhat of a long, uh, slow decline. Uh, go. He didn't, I don't know whether he could pay his taxes or not. I guess one can always pay one's taxes if push comes to shove. He did not want to pay his taxes. I think he came from, my understanding, My the way I figured it out for myself was, first of all, he had this sort of aristocratic British, upper, you know, upper-class mentality where 
paying one's bills wasn't all that important. Well, <laughs> British literature is filled with with stories of, of 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 minor aristocrats who didn't pay for their clothes, who wouldn't pay their tailor, right? Um, but um, he also came from a fortune, and I think his most famous client, uh, Millicent Rogers, came from a fortune. And so income taxes were viewed as a bad thing. So he was constantly thinking of ways to get out of them. It was it was a quirk in his mindset. He invented schemes to get out of them. And he and he got into trouble with the IRS. Absolutely, he did not pay his taxes. But that seems to be a very clear line in his um, in his career, isn't it? When the IRS basically say, you know what. You haven't paid your taxes. Well, they they shut down his showroom in New York. That's in 1958. Yeah, that's the end of his that's the end of his career, essentially. But just I think he's sort of demoralized. He's broken. He, he's been through all these lawsuits. It, you know, his 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 wife is unhappy. He's these two young babies. He can't support them. The the schemes that he thought were work would work have all sort of gone awry. And and he can't and they and they they close him down and and they they make him pay back taxes. He actually is so charming <laughs> that he's able to talk the IRS agent into letting him reopen one of his studios so he can he can he he's the first person to make fake fur coats and he's discovered this wonderful fake fur and so he wants to make a group of fake fur coats that he thinks he can sell and and redeem his fortune. And it doesn't work. It's an idea that's ahead of his time, and so that's that's over then. It's pretty much the the end, <laughs> or the end of that that iter- that part of his his life and his career. And then he moves to the Chelsea Hotel and kind of rubs up against people like Warhol. Tell us about that kind of last period of Charles's life and how he still tried to keep his creativity and and his art and his fashion alive sort of a stroke of good luck he was given three rooms at the Chelsea Hotel and the, the way the Chelsea Hotel was run at the time was the man who owned it liked to have all these kind of colorful creative people hanging out there so he would give artists and writers free rent and then he would charge all the people who came, the sort of the rich ne'er-do-well kids, you know, who, who were coming to hang out and be cool. He would charge them a lot of money. He would sort of bilk them. And he would give the cool, creative people free rooms. And he thought of Charles as an artist. And he gave Charles three rooms at the Chelsea. And that's where Charles was able to live, live basically rent-free uh, for the rest of his life. And the Chelsea was just filled with these characters. You met them in the in the hallway. You met them on the stairs. Charles was also always very progressive. So I think he attracted uh, talent. You know, he recognized it. He attracted it. He spoke the language of talent. Does that make sense? No, no, absolutely, absolutely. But it's fairly safe to say, though, that he dies in somewhat kind of straightened circumstances. He lived in hotels. He lived in glamorous hotels. He had a glamorous facade, but he was never paying his bills. He he had the life of a gypsy. I mean, I don't know how his wife was able to stand it for that as long as she did. I mean, he, they were moving every every second because that's the way he lived before he got married to to a large extent. Although he had some places that that he stayed in for 
course, some time, but, but generally he was a mobile kind of person. Um, the, 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 the Chelsea was a little, it, it was sort of downtrodden grandeur, it was aristocratic grandeur. He had, he had um, Dominique de Menil who was sending him checks for $10,000 and they would be gobbled up in a week. And then, you know, the 1970s, $10,000 was a lot of money. So it wasn't that he had no money. It was it was that he he was sort of living in in the uh, in the uh, what is it the louche world of the seventies because there were a lot of characters like that hanging around and it was sort of cool to be like that. And yes, he wasn't rich. Um, and 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 yes, the rooms the rooms where somebody described the rooms as so untidy that they had a kind of awful grandeur. What, if you had to sum it up in just a couple of sentences, should be Charles's legacy to 20th century fashion, Joe? To fashion specifically? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he invented the colder jacket. There you are. You go out on the street in New York in the winter. We're, we're now in the springtime, but, but you, and everybody's wearing one. That's a fashion legacy. <laughs> he, he invented the wrap dress. That's another fashion legacy. In between, he invented, he reinvented the great ball gowns of, of history. He invented the sports bra. But I think more importantly, he gave people a new way of looking at fashion because he put it in museums. And he got people looking at the clothes they, they wore mindfully. He set fashion apart. He took it beyond itself. He made people think of it as more than just clothing, more than just adorning yourself, more than just getting yourself noticed when you get into the room. He made people think about what it could be as a metaphor, as a metaphor that could be inherent in it, and, 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 and where it could go both small and large. So Charles died in 1977, I believe. Yeah. And you said at the start of the interview that Homer Lane gathered up the recordings he'd made with Charles, because he'd actually worked with Charles, hadn't he? He was kind of his narcissist. It was, it was Corey Hay, who was a, mm-hmm. was a friend of Andy Warhol's and, and a writer, and had and was, was writing for Interview Magazine, and Anton Parrish, who, who was an artist and also in the Warhol entourage and a photographer and, and a filmmaker, and had this... Uh, uh, um, a television station that that they made the tapes for to go on television. Homer, at the end of Charles's life, preserved everything that Charles left. But but Corey and and Anton had the tapes separately. Uh, Homer preserved the legacy of Charles James for years and years and years until the Mets started uh, doing their show, and then he, then then the Met either bought it or or were given parts of it. I'm not sure of that. But yeah, they kept it. They didn't really know what to do with it because drills was such a complicated subject. But you've written books before and you've explained the reason why you were attracted to the life of Charles. When did you discover Charles and how difficult was it to sell this book to publishers, to the fashion world, who, let's be honest about it, had somewhat forgotten Charles and his work? It wasn't that difficult to sell Charles to the fashion world. He was always a cult figure. Most people in the fashion world, if they were really erudite, uh, knew about Charles James. Oscar de la Renta, whenever he 
talked about himself, would say very proudly, and I worked at Elizabeth Arden, you know I followed Charles Day. But people slightly a little away from that core center of, of fashion people who, who, who knew about Charles didn't. And so it was very difficult. And I would, I, would say to, I would say things to people like he invented the parka, and they would say to me, I thought Eskimos did that. <laughs> yeah, it was, so it, it took a while, but it, and it, it just took finding people who thought it was a good idea. You just sort of run into like-minded people through the years and starting to get the momentum for the idea. And of course, Harold was very helpful when he did the show, although he didn't do the show to be helpful to me, but he, he did it because he thought it was a good idea and it was a beautiful thing and, and it would be bringing back this sort of lost master um, of, of the world that Harold had spent his, his life working in. But it took some doing. It was a little trick. So from putting first pen to paper to write the book to it being published with this amazingly beautiful cover, um, how long did that take? That's impossible to say. I mean, from the contract to, to the end, it was probably three, three and a half years. From putting pen to paper, I wrote lots of things about Charles in, in all the years before that because I was trying, trying to get my head around uh, who he was and, and the best way to, to find out about somebody is, is sometimes to write about them and it, it gives you perspective and it makes you see what you want to leave in and, and, and take out. So I was writing about Charles almost from the beginning in little drips and drabs and taking notes. I had notebooks of notes of different things that struck me and different things he said and then I tried to piece them together. It was a little bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle. There's no straight line with Charles. It's not like writing about Hubert Humphrey. You know, you can't <laughs> go and research the, the, the timeline. Michelle Gerber-Klein, thank you for coming on to Friday. You are the author of Charles James' Portrait of an Unreasonable Man. This is the title track, Love and Hate. Love and Hate is the second studio album by London-based singer-songwriter Michael Kikwanuka.
feedback, feedback, give me feedback. If you want to email me and possibly even get on the show, you can do that by emailing me at royfield at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm not great on the platform, but I am at Royfield on Twitter. And of course, you can go all the way over to Facebook and you can find Friday 15 there. Oh, one last thing. Be awesome if you could write us a little bit of a review on iTunes or on a podcatcher of your choice. See you all again in seven days time on another Friday.